The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. This is insane. We'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's is, funny. Uh, I, did, I did the same math. Like, yeah. How many hours do they have to fly to break the record? Oh, my God. Why not try just to TBO and it? Why, why not try to get an engine to TBO in one flight? This is my point. This is my point. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to wreck. The, this is what makes. The, I mean, this is crazy to begin with. There's any number of reasons why this is a silly idea, all right? Not the least of which is they're going to wreck this airplane in the process. All right? How do you know this? Well, they're well, going to wreck the engine. They're going to run out the engine. If they, I, I disagree. Why not? Just, they, yeah. they might run it past its, its manufacturer recommended TBO. I will. I will freely admit that I don't know anything about the airplane. Yeah. I, I'm just loading the story. I don't know anything about the airplane, the engine, the times on them, whatever. Um, running an engine in in this kind of an environment, uh, um, in long endurance, so you got reduced power. Uh, it's moving. Uh, there's cooling. Um, you're not going to full power on a takeoff. You're not pulling the power off to land. You're not starting it up cold. Um, the, the only real it's problem is it's in a steady state. It's in a steady state. It's it's doing what it's designed to do. It's not designed to sit. Really? Okay. Well, hey, just one second here, because we have our listeners at a disadvantage here. This is from a story in AvWeb. I'm sure it's been other places now too, but uh, AvWeb, uh, AvWeb, January 31st. Two men, one Cessna, 65 days aloft, nonstop. Chet and Matt Pipkin plan to set a new record for time aloft in an airplane, a record that currently sits at 64 days, 22 hours, 19 minutes, and five seconds. So they're going to re- redo. This is a legendary flight from way back when, like, I guess what? I guess what? 1958, 58, 59. 59. 58, 59. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Both years. And they said so they apparently flew a, uh, was it a 172 at that time, too? It was some sort yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and if the stories are to be believed, these guys back in the 50s uh, uh, flew, did, in fact, do this. And they had some weird rig where they were able to refuel in flight by, by flying over an, a car. Or along a runway and so forth. Well, and so and now I, I the, love the photograph here because it just shows you two of the really hot technologies of the late 1950s: yeah. a brand spanking new straight tail 172, yeah, and a new Ford Thunderbird. Right, right. So they're going to do this again. They're going to try and do it. It's a charity thing. They're going to try and raise some money uh, and uh, and have their their moment of fame. I'm pretty dubious about this. I apologize. They're probably going to become legends. The, the quote but, at the end of the first graph is classic. Yeah. This project is ridiculous, the men admit. In fact, that's why we love it. But it does have a serious side. The men hope to raise money for charity. Yeah, it is ridiculous. It's a stunt. It's fun. Now, they apparently uh, they have obviously a, have nothing else better to do. I know. They apparently have a scheme to do oil changes in flight. Yeah, you'd have to. Well, have to. did the guys in 58? I don't know. It's they like, no, they, I, just, I they article, had a way to add oil. Yeah, in yeah there, was a, there was an article... I'm going to say air and space. It's been probably within the last couple of years mm-hmm. uh, that that explored this a little bit. It was quite the production. Um, they even had um, another airplane. If I, if it's the episode I'm thinking of, they even had another airplane rigged up as a tanker. And 
um, somehow they transferred fuel between the two airplanes. You think? Because I thought they did it by dropping a, a hose down to this car. That's the whole point of this picture, is that they dropped a hose well, down to a vehicle and pumped the fuel up or something like that. I think that vehicle isn't really equipped to start pumping fuel. Well, maybe not that one, but okay. the, there was a... Now, there may have been, they may have had a truck or something like that, but um, you gotta, you got to pump it up to the airplane where you can use gravity from another airplane. Yeah. And... You know, there's all kinds of, you know. I think there was some know, experimentation do done with that, but that on the ultimate flight that back in December four fifty eight to February seven fifty nine. So how was your flight? Oh, lasted all year. Uh, <laughs> We're going flying, Ma. What, See you next year. For Christmas. Yeah, I don't know. This is just... New Year. And New Year's. I mean, my God. So let's see. Hey, listen, uh, I won't be home for Christmas. I won't be home for New Year's, but I'll be back just in time for Valentine's Day. I'm probably going to be a little grungy and smell a little bit like 100 low lead and, 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 and airplane oil, but that's okay. And tuna fish and bologna sandwiches, but you'll yeah. get over that. Yeah. Oh, they're on Twitter, too. <laughs> Are they on Twitter? Apparently. Let's see here. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, stay on. tuned. Boise, Idaho, October 1, 2010. I want to see the airplane they're going to fly and, and learn more about that. I want to I hear about the prep. Yeah. Let's see now. Oh, I love the little drawing there. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, yeah <us. laughs> well, I can think of some things that I'd, oh, so I'd want to upgrade from a standard 160 or 180 horse Scott, uh, Skyhawk. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just have this vision of a couple of college kids sitting around the dorm, you know, drinking beers and going, "I got a great idea." <laughs> Look, I'll draw you a picture. I this is this how is come definitely... nobody ever did something like how many people can you stuff into the into the cabin of a of a Skyhawk? We'll see. Uh, yeah. You know, they did phone booths and Volkswagens and all that silly nonsense back around the same time period. Why not? How many can you stuff into a Skyhawk and keep it off its tail? Without even trying to fly it, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. That's that. Should, that should be the first test. They they need to uh, they need to go and just sit in the 172 in the hangar for 10 days. If they can do that, I'll start to begin to believe this. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they're talking a little over two months here. Two months. Well, I, in the one seventy, uh, I think you pretty much have to presume that alcohol was involved somewhere. Yeah, in, really? In, in I don't know. Maybe we're not doing these guys justice. God bless I, I, them. No, I, I more power no, to them, and I want to hear more about this, and I'll I'll start following them on Twitter and yeah, and stuff like that. He says but, their target date for liftoff is October first, twenty ten, from Boise, Idaho. I'm assuming Chet, they're going to fly around in circles. Chet, I don't know. Chet, Matt, Pippen, man, we are all for you. Seriously. Yeah. It's if it's been done before, it can be better today. Go for it. Did they say when they're going to try this? They said they're going. To, their target October. day is October. Ah, in Boise. Okay. In Bo- October in Boise. Well, they're going to start in October of, in Boise. Uh, I don't. I don't know that that's such a hot plan. They want to be home for Christmas. Well. Well, yeah, but that's taking them through mid-December, and maybe I'm not they're planning to fly to Tampa and back. Or- <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it would make sense. You know, they got a weather issue. You know, it's going to be cold and, and wet up there. Yeah, that time of year before you they think get, that's going to be sixty-five the problem, days huh? before think- sixty-five days elapse. I'm just thinking all the little uh, details. Look at where they did it the first time. They did it in freaking Mojave. Exactly. Well, you know, what's there you the difference go. between yeah. Mojave in the spring, summer, winter, and fall? How hot hot is. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, you know, seriously. They get IFR days in Mojave like Wichita gets days with no wind. 
Okay. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 171 of Uncontrolled Although Airspace. It can blow really, really hard. The there. General Aviation Podcast, recording this episode on Friday, February 5th, 2010. And uh, I'm going to barrel on here, even if you guys are not going to stop talking. Joining me here in the virtual <laughs> hangar are my uh, loquacious friends here. First of all, uh, Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. You're back in Wichita, right, David? I'm back in Wichita. I take exception to that loquacious, but we'll, we'll plunge right ahead. Yeah, back in the none of our listeners would. What's that? None, of our, none of our listeners. Our listeners will understand our... completely. Yeah. Hey, you know, can look at Google Loke. Loke. Okay. What's I'm going on, sure David? Is loquacious related to Loki? No, 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 no. If it's that's some... the case, maybe I can go along. Yeah. With it. All right. All right. Did it snow there in in, in Wichita? Uh, uh, yesterday. Yesterday, uh, it, it did. Uh, I think over about a hundred square mile area, we got enough for a snow cone, but it did definitely snow here yesterday. Uh-huh. But we're expecting more, I'm told. Yeah, okay. And uh, speaking of Nothing snow, like the East Coast, though. <laughs> speaking of snow, uh, Jeb Burnside is here. He's talking to us from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, which where I'm guessing it did not snow. And, it uh, did not snow today. Um, color me surprised. Yeah, I know. <laughs> for the Five thousand two hundred and twelfth time in a row. Right. It did not another. Yeah, just another ugly day in paradise. Well, buddy of mine have a have a saying between us. We, how's it going? What you know? What's your day like? Oh, just Groundhog Day. Andy McDowell hasn't woken up in my bed yet. Oh well, okay. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking Yay. from the home office here in Dover, New Hampshire, where I've made it back to today. Anybody who is following me on Twitter knows that I had a little adventure. I was down in in uh, Virginia for a couple of days. I was actually in Jeb and your old uh, stomping grounds there, yeah, yeah. Falls Church, which apparently is like now. So that so, uh, um, but there I was down in Virginia, and uh, and and fortunately managed to make it back. Uh, for anyone who's paying attention to such things, they'll they'll know that uh, January fifth became a hell or February fifth, excuse me, came a hellish day in air travel because a big big storm hit the uh, sort of center of the 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 vertical center, if you will, um, through the the, the, the weather the, the weather channel had coast. launched its go team. Yeah, so. Ooh, I want that job, but. Um, <laughs> so it was crazy and as yeah. i was joking to people i was really i was actually looking forward to return back up here to the north where the winters aren't quite so harsh because <laughs> they're having a crazy winter down there uh they they just are having a, you know i mean you know what they consider a lot of snow is not what what i consider a lot of snow necessarily but the forecast today is for two feet and that's that's not nothing no matter where you are that's yeah, yeah. Uh, so. that's gonna... part of it's like in aviation some of it's an experience level thing yeah, uh, some of it's an equipment thing, uh, and folks where you live and where I was last week have a a lot more experience, b a lot more confidence, c a lot more experience, a lot more equipment to have confidence in. So you know they tend to handle it differently, even though they may get whacked heavily far more often and far more seriously than. Virginia, D.C., BWI, and all that. The well, folks there, they feel it much more acutely because, as the guy will be saying on the radio tomorrow, no, we're not really used to this. Yeah, I know. No, the reason, the reason, well, two things. Washington, if, if they get two feet of snow tonight, tomorrow, D.C. is going to be shut down until Tuesday at least. And, and of course, um, I don't know when this will hit the streets. But, uh, yeah, but today's uh, Friday, all, so you're saying three, all, four days. 
Yeah, to all of our list. Maybe we should get it up early so they'll have something to listen to um, while they're stuck at home. But um, um, they're going to be shut down till like Tuesday. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. and, and, and you know, good luck, guys. You know, uh, hang in there. We're pulling for you. Um, and choosing you sheets. This, you, I'm yeah, talking, by the time you, you read this, Susan, it'll all be over. Made it out to, if you made it out to uh, Manassas on Saturday, uh, what would that be? On Saturday, February 6th, to watch the snow removal, like you said you were going to try to, you are a hearty soul because it sounds like <laughs> you guys are going to get snowmobile weather. Now uh, they, they hope she lives close by. To try and to try and twist this back to be a real aviation story for yeah. just a second here, um, I, I it, it was kind of remarkable that um, I arrived at at uh, BWI Baltimore uh, International, Baltimore Washington International Airport, um, this afternoon for my flight and before the first snowflake was in the air. And already, when I walked into the terminal, more than half of the departures on the board were canceled. I mean, they were well, just, you know, I guess they know how this is going to work. They can, they got, had, you, had, you, had you taken the time, this is a question, had you taken the time to look at weather south and west of you? I did to quickly. look at what was already happening there. Yeah, so they, you're saying is that they they had a pretty good picture of what they were about to get hit with, and they just kind of not decided. only that, but the things that were coming and going from those places was already being affected. Yeah, oh, even okay. if it wasn't snow, the level of precip that they were getting in some of those areas slows. Well, first off, the runway acceptance rate at some place like uh, Atlanta, uh, Hartsfield. Uh, goes way down when the weather goes down. And they've done a lot to improve that over the years, but it's still usually considerably slower or, or in less frequent that you can put an airplane on the runway there than during good weather, during VFR conditions. Uh, so that slows things down. When things slow down at a big place like that, it ripples back through the system. And one of the things we were alluding to earlier was that if Southwest had a lot of stuff originating and departing from Hartsfield, uh, you might well still be at BWI, but the flight that you got on at BWI to go up to New Hampshire was uh, originated from someplace other than a big hub affected by the weather and Southwest schedule that way. Right, because it came from Oklahoma City and uh, stopped in BWI and then moved on to... Right, it overflew all the gnarly crap. Yeah. Yeah, it beat it out in BWI by only a couple hours. But your if, point if is you'd have been booked on Delta or Northwest or U.S. Air, uh, and I would wager that a lot of the cancellations that you were seeing were those airlines. Probably, probably. Because they were coming down from parts of the world where the weather was already slow down sucky. All right. All right. People are screaming at their iPods right now. we got to like move on. Um, uh, but then, but we're going to go one, one, one last bit of uh, of administrative or, or uh, non uh, flying thing here. I just want to mark a, 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 a milestone here. Um, as I said, we're recording this episode on uh, February fifth, twenty ten. Uh, just about exactly three years ago, on February second, two thousand seven, we recorded uh, Uncontrolled Airspace episode number fourteen one four. Um, up until that point, um, we had been doing the podcast for what about four months. At that point, we started out doing it every other week, and we kind of uh, gradually started doing it every ten days or so. But on February 2nd, 2007, with episode 14, we started doing the podcast weekly. And f- 
and how and, do you spell that again? Yeah, and the rest is history. Um, I'm I'm very it, I, it, I'm very proud of this. I I, I suspect you guys are too. That uh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, for the past 156 weeks, uh, we've done uh, based on average. Occasionally, it kind of varies up and down a little bit, but uh, but if you do the math, uh, 171 today, a four, 14. Uh, 156 weeks ago. That's 157 episodes in the past 156 weeks. Hey, we, wow. can, we can take a week off. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm saying we're going to get it right yet, damn it. Uh, <laughs> well, it, 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 in pride aside, the uh, awe that I feel about the people that download us and, and express enough interest to make this a continuing enterprise. I, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, we've talked about yeah. this before. Uh, one of the many things that took me has taken me by surprise over the years is all the cool people I've met as a result of this. I've just met so many interesting people. Yeah, you know, and, and we continue to and, yeah. and uh, have fun with them and uh, um, you know just benefit from the buzz and it, it's it's all good. Yeah, it's all very very cool. And 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 uh, just as a Minor heads up, this won't happen until far later in the year, but EP200 is coming in 2010. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say right up front, cash gifts, travel tickets, airplanes, (laughs) and airline tickets are welcome. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Hey, uh, so uh, here we go. We found another airplane for for Dave. Um, I'll fly this airplane, too. This looks pretty cool. This but. Um, I first heard this from our friend Dave Schalbetter down in Florida. Me too. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I saw the link. It's called the Smartfish Personal Jet. All right. And when I first thought it, saw it, I thought that it wasn't an airplane. I thought it was like some sort of underwater flying, you know, scuba device thing. All right? It looks that fluid, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so I, when I was sort of reading, I'm going, well, vibe going okay, on. but it's not an airplane. And then I'm reading and I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is an airplane. This is like an airplane flies in the air. This is a jet. It's very, very uh, sleek. It's very science fiction looking. I just, you know, I mean, of course, it doesn't really exist. It only exists in uh, in three D drawing programs and so forth. But uh, but it's an interesting idea. I wonder if anybody will actually try and build something like this. <laughs> I I am sincerely hoping so because my yeah. airplane fund just got redesignated. Yeah. Whichever I reach the threshold for first, another Comanche or this is what wins, but then I continue to save toward this for whenever. Yeah. Because this really jumped into me as a, yes, I will buy this airplane on the basis (laughs) of two things. It'll hold a second person, it'll carry a reasonable amount of luggage, and it's got fuel efficiency beyond anything I ever dreamed of out of something that wasn't an ultralight. Well, I I, I agree with all that. If If it can do that, I mean, holy cow! They're well, talking, I, I, yeah, they're I, I agree with you. I mean, if, if the, I, I like the looks, uh, the numbers, I haven't really dived into them, but we're talking point eight five uh, on one engine. I don't, I don't know about these numbers. That, that's a little bit optimistic. But if they can do it, you know, for you know, some percentage of those numbers, I like the look. I like the concept. Uh, it's about time that you know somebody broke some molds here. Uh, the flip side of which is, um, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen Eclipse. We've seen, you know, so many, so many, so many other, you know, uh, break the mold, um, uh, new new paradigm kind of, of aircraft designs. And as, as Jack points out, you know, they, they exist in, in 3D CAD drawings on some computer somewhere. Most of them don't ever make it off the, off the screen. Yeah. I, I'm not expecting to have to lose any money on this. 
Oh, I get that part. You know, you know, but yeah. the, the after the after the next airplane, the savings continue to accumulate because if this did exist, yeah. Well, six hundred. Uh, I'm sorry, eight hundred and sixty-one pounds. I'm sorry, back again. Six hundred and sixty-one pounds of pilot, passenger, and luggage. That's huge. Okay, that's just huge in a, in a, in a GA airplane that, with full fuel already. Right, right. All right, you got separate fuel, and they're claiming, and this is a nineteen hundred pound thrust engine that's not going to have to propel two thousand pounds at the airplane's empty weight plus fuel, plus pilot, passenger, maximum luggage. It's not going to be propelling 2,000 pounds. Yeah, it will. That's over a pound of thrust per pound. No, 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 no. no. Read read the numbers again. 1,102 pounds pounds. empty plus 882 of fuel. 3,000 pounds. Yeah, and plus 661. So you're talking 2,600, 2,700 pounds. 700 pounds. Yeah, my bad math, Larry. That probably comes out, you know, something. We're still only talking. A little over a pound and and what a half per pound of thrust. Oh my God! Well, and all that in the air where that can operate up in the thin air where that that Williams FJ thirty three can make that uh, uh, power adjusted nineteen hundred pounds. Uh, the aerodynamics are the only thing that have to be there because the power is there. Well, they, and they got to see if they can actually build it for that weight, which is usually the problem. Is That's that, the which thing. Is usually That's the problem. thing. You know, is yeah, it on, we, on paper? It looks it like get, it'll weigh so much, but then when you actually manufacture these things, you got to like add this and that. As it gets heavier, you need you know more more fuel to get the same range and, and performance. Once you start yeah, adding the weight, obstacle, you need the obstacles, big, you need a bigger engine, and if you add a bigger engine, you still need still more fuel, and it's it's a vicious. The circle. obstacles are huge. The obstacles right. are huge. But you know what we'll the see first? I predict the thing that catch my attention. We'll see a UAV. That is so far out beyond anything that we've seen, and the ability to manufacture that. I think it's going to be the real key here because I, th- I think the aerodynamics are going to prove out to work with the engine power and the engine's ability to make power at altitude. Uh, manufacturing that kind of structure to carry the weights that they're talking about uh, and then to come up with the fuel efficiency they're talking about. 6,200 miles on on 165 gallons of Jet A plus reserves. Well, all this, miles. all this is on paper, man. All this right. is on, all this not is even on paper. paper. But let me but. tell you, they hit the numbers. I'm finding a way to own this airplane. <laughs> okay, good. I wouldn't hold you that. We're going to keep an eye on that. All right. Um, if it's if if it goes four times faster than a Comanche 180 and uses one quarter of the fuel of a Comanche 180, but can carry you and your best buddy and the typical luggage overload that you carried wouldn't you want that yeah i'd want it but dave it ain't gonna happen I, i'm not saying it's gonna happen i'm saying if it happens i want to wait on the airplane. <laughs> he also buys lottery tickets every week so it's okay right? no not every week but when it gets to be in i can retire brainlessly territory for, yes for, for I, our 200th for our 200th episode you can get him a new rabbit's foot <laughs> That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. Plus, I'm looking at it painted up like Nemo. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, give it some sort of right, exactly. Give it some sort of killer shark kind of kind of look, you know. There you go, because it looks so much more nautical than aeronautical. It totally does. It's very, very cool looking. I want to see I predict the first thing we're gonna see, someone right now is building a radio controlled model, you know, scale model version of one of these. Oh yeah, probably you know, oh. people behind the full scale version, but yeah, that's but somebody that's else the first thing I would do. do. Yeah, right. So well, we're closing, I, I'd like to know about it. I like to know how much runway that little sucker is going to require because it, that's it's got, that's you know, a question for me because the wing area, the wing loading, and all that. This may not be the kind of uh, airplane that goes into the kind of airports I really prefer. Uh, but the other things happening, I could probably learn to live with that. You might be able to get it in, but not get it out. But it, we're closing in on the technology that will let this kind of really complex compound structure come into existence at competitive pricing. Yeah. I mean, not quite there yet, but we're getting really close. Yeah. We're also getting to the point where the systems um, are basically computers. And yeah. you all know how cheap computers are getting. Yeah, and look how well that's worked for Toyota. <laughs> well, they have had a software issue with their Prius, but their 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 other issue with uh, with the acceleration thing that's more mechanical. That's like a man machine kind of interface issue. It's not software uh, hard. And I, and I got to go with this percentage thing. You yeah, would get into a discussion. This is more aviation like than anything that you usually hear of out of the automotive industry. The number of vehicles involved versus the actual number of reports of this happening are so astronomically small that I would worry less right. about my Toyota having an uncontrolled acceleration incident yeah, well, than I would about a crash at a GA airplane. You're apparently the one who's not worrying about it because it seems like a lot of people are worrying about it. Anyways, it's called the Smartfish. It's a very cool-looking airplane. Their Smartfish website is uh, jet. Yeah. www.smartfish.ch, which is obviously not a U.S. website. I think it's Switzerland, German. I believe. Switzerland. You know what, you know what could be fun to keep you occupied playing with this idea until the years from now when it could actually possibly exist. Yeah. Is is getting some versions of the picture and playing with the paint schemes. Yeah. How would you finish your Smartfish personal jet? There you go. There you go. All right, moving on. Uh let's see now. Big story this past all right, I I have a huge God, bias here. So thirsty. Um, big, big uh, story this past year in the technical in the technology world. All right, um, is Apple's announcement of their new tablet computer, the so-called iPad, uh, and uh, there's a lot of talk among pilots about how. Uh, whether, if, how uh, the iPad will be useful for pilots uh, in aviation settings, and uh, I, I just Do you want... know that they rejected an alternate name for that. Oh, here we go. All right, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah no, please, <laughs> just go ahead and push the pause button. Yeah, all right, David. What was the alternate name that they rejected? <laughs> I saw it on Colbert. It was the Tampod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, that was that was Higdon. Higdon, H I G D O N. I think it has potential to be a cool tool for. Uh, well, I mean, to, to the extent that things like iPhones and and Androids and and uh, even Blackberries are useful to pilots, you know, this is even more so because you know this is the size. This is a little bit bigger than an approach plate, for example. And uh, well, there's, there's there's two things going on. One is um, there's no software for it yet. Um, so we don't know. I think it's easy to presume. Actually, that, there's no it yet. So well, there's, there's no, no it, it yet. yet. 
then after it, that, there's it's no It's easy to presume that very quickly uh, people will be porting software or, or um, uh, yeah, porting to, existing well, stuff they have been to run on the iPad. Well, to that point, have, let me just jump, interrupt you for a second and just say that I actually shot off a, a quick email to the folks at Foreflight, which yeah. is one of the leading uh, developers of uh, mobile uh, aviation I'm sorry, software. for what? Foreflight. Thank you. Foreflight. That's what I said. Foreflight. And uh, they do a lot of really cool uh, products. I'm obviously familiar with them for the iPhone. I think they do others, but I'm not sure. But uh, they do a lot for the, they've done a lot of interesting things on the iPhone. And so I asked them, I said, you know, I said, this thing has just come out. What, what do you, you know, what do you have in mind? What do you think? And the response I got um, was, was, well, here's the response. He wrote, uh, we're excited about the iPad launch, really excited. He says, the potential is amazing, and we'll be looking to exploit the iPad's capabilities in unique ways, as we did for the iPhone. It will change the way we plan and execute our flights, he writes. However, we're not ready to make any announcements about what, when, why, how uh, at this time. It requires a unique approach, different than the iPhone, as we expect the use causes, I love that phrase, that's real marketing, that's a real technology marketing, the use, use cases, excuse me, to be different. Uh, taking advantage of the device size and the form, etc. He writes, uh, we would encourage pilots to send wish lists to team at foreflight.com. That's F-O-R-E flight.com. So, uh, you know, they, as you would imagine, they're they're interested, probably excited. I, as I said to other people, I said they're downloading the software. As You know, they were downloading the, the development oh, the system yeah, yeah. before the, the introduction ended, I'm sure. So, uh, um, you know, we're going to see something from them on this thing. You know, they've got two months. And uh, uh, I bet they're going well, to be have things on at introduction. A lot of developers with track records and relationships and and, and good ideas uh, were already in possession of developers' toolkits before this thing was even announced. Uh, I think right now we're going through that period where the stuff that's going to be available the day of launch is is getting one last final. Maybe beta, maybe Charlie, you know. Uh, yeah, well, you QC know, see check. No, I don't know. I I know that's often the case, David. But I don't think that was necessarily the case here with Apple and the iPad. They were really playing it close to the vest here. Um, they they invited. Well, I understand, but they that I've I've read information and uh, in, in, in blog things from people that were blessed with some time to sample this to give feedback, and you know that they, they're signing non disclosure agreements that they wish their private parts were that thick. Uh, so this didn't think the, the development on software for this thing didn't start just when they made the announcement. And I expect to see some cool stuff for, for airplane people I here do too. almost well, right out of the box. Well, let me ask you this. Right. So, um, I, we have our friend uh, uh, John Wellington, um, uh, a, a friend of the podcast, um, has a uh, one of the upscale Kindles, not the normal Kindle too. There's a DX. sort of larger sk- screen Kindle that he apparently likes a lot and uses uh, in flight uh, and has a lot of uh, of uh, approach plates and charts and whatnot and checklists and I think he even has his manuals, uh, aircraft manuals in it. Um, and, and he seems to like it a lot, and from what I've heard, I've never gone flying with him, but from what I've heard, he does, in fact, carry it with him and uses it all the time on every flight. Um, Jeb, we all know that you spent some time a year or so ago uh, exploring this whole area and devised a solution, but I kind of get the feeling that you don't use it very much. Well, I do use it. Um, I guess, you know, every time I, uh, and I just haven't talked about it. As a matter of fact, I've got the brand new um, uh, DVD sitting here by the computer. Oh, okay. Uh, from uh-huh. the FAA, uh, which is is the, 
the uh, 28-day update of all the approach charts in, in basically in PDF format with front-end software to run it. Uh, and that runs on a, on a Windows XP system. Uh, the, the hardware is a um, Samsung Q1. Um, I guess three things from my experience with the Q1. Is, first of all, it's, it's not a perfect solution. Um, and, and I don't know right now um, that a perfect solution exists. And, and by perfect solution, um, I'm thinking of a portable electronic device with color uh, that is fast and has, has decent storage to it that can hold every approach plate in, in, in the U.S., um, as well as the books and manuals, as, as our friend uh, Mr. Wellington uh, apparently does with his Kindle. Um, it needs to do a few other things. Uh, it needs to have Wi-Fi, which the iPad will. Um, it, 3G would be nice with the later uh, models of the iPad will. Um, one thing that would be really nice also, and in, in if, you're, if you're considering an iPad for the cockpit, is USB. Right now, there is no USB port on the iPad that I understand. What would you want to use USB for? Well, two things. One, um, rather than use the network or the or um, uh, yeah, rather rather than use the Wi-Fi to to load and upload stuff, um, be able to jack in a, a DVD player. That uh, okay. would be that yeah, just for that, and then you can also use it once you, if you have the USB. And let's say it's plugged into um, to ship's power via cigarette lighter or something like that. You can also use that USB port to power another device. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, um, I don't know. I, I presume uh, at some point and, and in some version of the iPad, it will have GPS. It would be really freaking cool. If that worked in a cockpit without any further uh, uh, ado, and all we had to do was cobble together some software, yeah, um, that it, would be really. The cool. announcement is that the uh, G3 version will have GPS. So apparently, the GPS is on the same chip as the as the G3 stuff, so right. it comes together. Well, that 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 raises the question: Can you disable the 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 3G chip, but or, or at least that portion of the the power drain, and keep the GPS on? Yeah. A good I'd, question. I'd obviously I'd be, don't know. Yeah, I'd be surprised if you can't, but that's a good question. Yeah. So uh, so um, from experimenting with your solution, you, the yeah. idea of having a tablet to, to display this stuff works? The, the, the other, yeah, it does work. The, there's two other issues. One is sunlight readability. Mm-hmm. Um, and from all reports, the, the screen on the... Um, on the iPad should be legible, if 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 not easily legible, in in bright sunlight. Based on what I know about the way iPods are, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I well iPods for that matter, but uh, iPhones, mm-hmm. Droids, this new screen technology is really pretty slick. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's that. Plus, you got to have a place to mount it. And, and a, a way to mount it. You can't hold it and fly the airplane at the same that time. That was one of my questions. It, yeah. It's it's not an insignificantly sized piece of, of equipment. Mine is about I don't know about a foot diagonal, maybe um, maybe six wide and, and um, nine or ten deep. It's it's not light either. It's mine. My box weighs two or three pounds. Mm-hmm. The iPad's supposed to weigh a pound and a half. That's that's a good thing too. Um, the touchscreen can be uh, kind of iffy in a cockpit. Yeah. Um, sometimes you want a real button uh, to get hold of, and you know, or, or a, you know, kind of a panic button or something on the thing. Say, stop what you're doing and do what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Okay. 
Um, how that will work with a soft keypad, I don't know. Yeah. That's that's another issue. Um, the Q1, I happen to have some of the accessories for it include a USB-powered uh, keyboard. Jacked a, jacked a keyboard into it, and boom, you've got um, a, a little portable computer that works fairly well at a lot of things. And uh, it's in its own little case. It's like a daytimer case. It's about that size. And um, you, can, you can sit there and type on, type on the thing in the cockpit without any issues. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the announced accessories for the iPad is a, a, a real keyboard. Unfortunately, it's not sort of a loose keyboard. It's actually kind of a mounted thing where you, you that, set it on a desk. And, there are actually but, convertible notebook computers that give you both. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. you can have as an EFB electronic flight bag, all the plates charged, geo reference because it's got GPS now for about a thousand bucks, and it actually converts from a touch screen to an actual keyboard, depending on how you pivot the screen. But here's here's the uh, the only other comment I'll have on on you know, and it's not really an iPod or, or I'm sorry, an iPad or, or Q1 comment or anything like that. What we've got to figure out a way to do. Um, let me back up. One of the things that um, EFBs and, and iPads and, and uh, Q1s and things like that, one of the reasons we're talking about all of this in the cockpit is we're trying to eliminate some of the paper. And the, one yep. of the principal pieces of paper we're trying to eliminate are instrument approach plates, which um, you either have these leather-bound uh, manuals uh, of from Jeppesen or you have these paper-bound uh, books from, from uh, FAA, from NACA. And they clutter up the cabin. They're heavy. They, they always get torn or, or something like that. And having all this stuff in one place electronically is, is really a good thing. Uh, I put, the, put that in, in it caps. It really is nice. But um, what we really need to be thinking about is getting away from trying to display a piece of paper on an electronic device and reconfigure, rejigger, the approach plate itself for electronic display. Right. Um, there's there's certain information that we need to have. Some of that can be on the panel, in the uh, on the MFD. Um, you know, I've I've got a lot of that stuff right now on my 530. I don't need all everything there is to see about you know. Uh, some of the the plan form data that's printed on the charts. I do need the inbound course. I need you know the missed approach information. I need um, um, you know the, the altitudes, all of that kind of thing. A lot of that can be done in the panel though, or it can be done in some fashion. Other it can be depicted, I should say, in some fashion other than the way it's depicted now. And once we get you know once we change that paradigm, this electronic. Uh, um, a flight bag thing will really take off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm, you know, this is one of those cart and horse things, chicken and egg things. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's going to start what Jeb suggests needs to happen. And I agree with him here. I'm not sure that's actually going to start to move the way that it could until the people that have a stake in this in producing this mm -hmm. start to see more pilots moving into electronic charts and plates so that they know that the ad adaptation is in full swing 
what are the uh, what are the regulatory issues with this kind of thing? Say uh, hypothetically, uh, an you know a company like Forflight or you know imagine a hypothetical one um, decided to deconstruct all of the plates and all of the information that's on the plates and create that's, you know that's all public record. That's what they're doing yeah. now. But they're if they did the that, no, no, I, I know it's doable. I know the data exists. If someone did that and published it, would the, that be a legal chart for using in you know? Doing I, I'm not. A, I'm not sure about that. I think there's two answers to that question. I think for Part 91, um, you're probably going to be okay with some subset of the printed chart as long as the information is present. Okay. For commercial ops, 135, 121, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have to have something that's approved by the agency. And right now. Uh, my understanding is basically the only approved things are uh, Jeppesen and, and NACO. Right. So uh, I might more, be wrong on that. It's more than a question of some developer deciding to make the investment. Um, it's, there's also going to be approval process probably on, well, on some and level. The approval process is primarily about assuring the FAA that the information that they think is minimally necessary is there in, in, in a forum. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have Jeppesen here. And Jeppesen takes a lot of and, uh, understandable pride and earned pride in the fact that in some of their products, they present the information differently and what they and a lot of pilots feel is a more usable form in their IFR charts and their approach plates. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is doable. It is doable, and, yeah. and, and God well, knows that there's uh, been proof that there's good money in the doable. Well, we're certainly going to be talking about this more because I confess that I am deep in the grasp. You're first of, in line. Yeah, I'm deep in the grasp of the reality distortion You're, field. Here. You are I, mayor of the RDF. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, that's a very well, good geeky I, I reference. You, I don't know I, if David gets it, but I, <laughs> I. Well, and I've I've done some flying in the last few months where we fulfilled our chart requirements with electronic flight bags. And it's freaking wonderful to be able to walk out to the aircraft with all the en route, VFR and IFR, all the approach plates, all the procedures, SIDS and STARS, in a little electronic package and the accessories that weighs maybe two and a half pounds, knowing that I couldn't do a third of the country for less than eight or nine pounds if I was still doing it with paper. And then to have it all geo-referenced on top of it. So if I'm using an approach plate, having the airplane actually right on the approach plate where it's supposed to be, it, it, it matching up with where I am on the approach, that stuff's hot stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand more guys not recognizing the benefit of, yeah, it costs, it's like digital cameras. Yeah, it costs more to adapt up front, but there's long-term benefit that you got to take into account. So... You know, Jeb's been rolling a system of his own. I've been lucky enough to sample some uh, some production solutions. Uh, I got to tell you, however you make it work, it's worth the squeeze yeah, to make yeah. it work. One one thing, though, you know, as with everything, it doesn't completely eliminate paper. Um, I still have to carry in route charts in the airplane, and I, I've I've gone over to the the air chart system, which is. Basically, a bound version, kind of spiral bound, big, big ass notebook. Yeah, uh, for for all the charts, 
and that gives me, you know, and reason for that is I, I thought I could do uh, all electronic in the airplane with the Q1, and it, I can't. I just don't have the horsepower, at least for the, to, to, for the software that I wanted to run on it. And launched out of here, um, um, instrument flight plan last year, uh, thinking, you know, fat, dumb, and happy with this thing. And um, I get a reroute that's like two intersections and, you know, uh, an airway and, and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, man, I can't do this. And I'll, I look down at the Q1, and I've got basically a blue screen of death on it. And um, so I had no in-route charts on me at the time. I said, you know, um, maybe you – know, I said, look, my my electronic in charting system is not cooperating this afternoon. Any chance you could give me the, the fixes I need for that, I can plug them in. And he's, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah. And uh, off we went. But um, the, the, the I, from that point on, I have some paper backup for, for lean routes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it doesn't hurt to print, just just in case, doesn't hurt to print a, a, a letter-sized piece of paper with the plate on it that you know you're going to use it if, all, if everything works out. The rest of it's there if you need it in the Q1. There you go. We're going to follow this stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 going to, I'm already a huge fan of the iPad. For the first time in, ever, I'm going to get in line, I think, and uh, day one and buy one of these things. So uh, I like the other name better. Yeah, okay. And by the way, I just went into Foursquare, and, uh, and I checked in uh, my location as being the UCAP virtual hangar. So uh, if anybody out there is a, a four, this is the mayor of reference that Jeb made a few minutes ago. <laughs> um, if anybody wants to go into Foursquare and check in to the UCAP virtual hangar, uh, that'd be kind of fun. Okay, let's move on here. Uh, over the God, I was thirsty. <laughs> over time, uh, in in uh, over the last I don't know a few months or so, we've talked on occasion, uh, uh, particularly about Jeb's adventures in uh, aircraft oil changes, uh, and <laughs> okay. uh, and of course, oh, most of the time it's not an adventure. Most of the time, it's very routine and goes just fine. But you have told us a couple of different uh, uh, exciting uh, instances of oil changes. A couple of listeners have uh, have have contacted us and asked us to elaborate a little bit on the subject of changing the oil on your airplane, um, hmm. alluding to the idea that there's maybe a little bit more to it than just saying, you know, I I drained the oil, I added the oil, I spilled it all yeah, over the floor. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I guess there is, but maybe you could talk a little bit about this. Um, you know, w- what's what's involved with changing the oil in, 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 on your airplane? How often do you have to do it? Um, th- there's a whole ana- oil analysis thing that I think people right. aren't familiar with. Right. Certainly from changing oil in your car, I, you don't do it. I, I, I lube, therefore I am. Yeah, that's right. How often do you change <laughs> the oil on your airplane? What's keep, the- keep your lube the hell away from me, okay? And just, just- well, when when we owned an airplane that uh, only had the old-style uh, screen, cleanable screen filter that was the, the state-of-the-art on aircraft engines uh, 60, 50, 60, 40 years ago. We changed the oil every 24 hours, or 25 hours. 25, so. yeah, obviously flying hours, yeah. Uh, when we swapped that out, which I think was like at 26 hours, for a spin-on oil filter cartridge, uh, we did one more 25-hour, and then we moved up to the 50-hour range. Yeah, replacing the filter, of course, as we went and checking the filter, uh, cutting it open and checking it for metal particulates uh, with a magnet and with a, a mesh screen, uh, something like a coffee filter. So just your, you, yourself ch- checking it, looking at it yeah. visually yeah, and manually. Yeah, we used a filter cutter. Yeah. We used a filter cutter. We cut open the filter. We dumped the uh, uh, residual in it. We pulled the pleats apart. 
We and, drug magnets across it. And uh, what was too much? Was anything too much, or was there a level that you, was okay? You, it, it, it's like a, a, an obscenity. You know it when you see it. I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I'm you not know, sure. One of, the, one of the big things that you watch for, Jack, is a change from one month yeah. to the next. Okay. All right. Okay. If you if you've been along three four oil changes, and you're getting a little bit of sediment there. I mean, little, little bitty fine powder that adheres to the magnet, and that's it. Uh, that's no big deal. As uh, long as it's consistent, then you come along to a month and you got particles in there that are a different color that don't get picked up by the magnet. There's a lot of them, and you get other stuff that picks up by the magnet. You drag the magnet across the bottom of the bucket that you drain the oil into and get even more stuff. Uh if you're not sending the oil off to analysis by then, uh, you should be. Start, starting then is going to mean another 50 hours before you can say it's getting better or worse uh, and, and knowing what's actually in your oil. Uh, but if you're not doing analysis, uh, the, the manual inspection of the filter gives you a frame of reference to dragging the magnet through the oil and the filter uh, will tell you how much ferrous stuff's coming out of it, and the less the better. Uh, if you're getting almost nothing sticking to the magnet, uh, you know, you're running along fat, dumb, and happy. Well, uh, but well analysis is really the best thing, and it takes regular, repeated analysis and watching where things go to know whether uh, it's stable. The, using the magnet's always a good thing. Um, basically, um, you, you, once you pull the pleats apart um, on the filter, anything that's shiny, you want to kind of pay attention to. Yeah, there um, you go. Um, generally, what you're going to find in, in a well-running engine, the, about which you shouldn't have no worries, um, maybe every 20th pleat would have just a small little shiny uh, a speck in it, almost like a uh, much smaller than a grain of sand. Um, readily identifiable as you pull the pleats apart, as long as you're using some decent light. Um if you you might see some some black um, um, again sand sized uh, particles uh, smaller than sand perhaps um, that's carbon and if yep. you take it and put it between your fingers it'll just it'll just disintegrate that's just a, a combustion byproduct that's what I want to see when I pop up in a filter is is just those two things anything else um, especially anything that <clears throat> excuse me that attaches to a magnet. Um, is is cause for additional uh, investigation. Um, in the event that <clears throat> bunch of it, yeah. In the event but, that you uh, find this sort of you know metallic stuff, what is it? What's it coming from? Well, that's where that's where the oil analysis uh, comes yeah. in. Okay, um, various components in the engine are 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 made of various metals, uh, and it kind of depends on how the engine's built, which engine it is, and uh, uh, what cylinders are on it. For example, if you've got chrome cylinders, and you see in your oil analysis, um, uh, a spike or, or an increasing level of chromium after you know several changes, you know that something's going on in your cylinders. It's probably some corrosion, um, things like that. Um, other metals, nickel, uh, molybdenum, um, say that three times real quick, um, are, are only present the analysis in certain parts can of help the engine. With this. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that, that Dave said about oil analysis is spot on, and that is you use it to identify trends. Uh, 
um, once you put your engine on oil analysis, your first two or so um, tests, your first two sets of results really don't matter. What you're trying to do there is establish a baseline. And as long as those two baselines are fairly consistent, uh, and as long as other readings on the engine as it ages uh, are, are fairly consistent and don't show spikes and, and don't show um, increasing trends over time, you're golden. But that's what you use an oil analysis for. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and a couple other things worth noting here, too. Uh, we, because of a – what's the word I want here? Because of a journalistic opportunity – we were allowed to sample a new semi-synthetic oil that one of the major producers put on the market many years ago. And they no, we, provided We us, being you, you and your Comanche. Well, us and our Comanche and a bunch of other aviation writers okay. who owned airplanes, right. too. Uh, not just myself. I wasn't, it wasn't that exclusive, not by a long shot. Uh, but in talking to some of these guys later on, many of us experienced the same thing. And enough oil was provided to do two full changes, plus whatever we might need yeah. to add in between. And what did you find? And, well, there was an interesting thing here. Initially, oil consumption went up and the airplane engine started to leak oil in places that it hadn't before. And before the, this was after the first change. And then it stopped leaking. And then the oil consumption stabilized, and in the period of the second oil change, using the same oil, our consumption dropped by about 25%. Really? Why is that? What was going on there? Difference in the oil, uh, difference in how much of it was getting past the cylinder ranks, or the piston ranks, uh, difference in how much of it was leaking out in little weepy ways that air-cooled engines often leak. Uh, it was a net effect thing. And why did uh, it change from one change to the next? Uh, the people that made the oil, the new oil, explained to me that a difference in its detergent properties uh, would result in its scouring uh, residue <clears throat> that hadn't been scoured in a while, but it would re-wet seals in a way that eventually stopped whatever leaking was going through those places where sediment had built up. Uh, that was That's kind just... of borne out because the leaks that we started to experience, we hadn't experienced in five or 600 hours with the engine up to that point. And then they stopped. But that's, that's the same kind of thing that, that did in uh, Mobile One. Okay, back you know, mobile one, the mobile one fiasco, if you will. Uh, I think it was late seventies, early eighties. Um, that that time frame, um, mobile came out with a new uh, fully synthetic um, aviation oil, aviation engine oil, piston engine oil, and um, you know promoted it very strongly. Um, a lot of people bought it. A lot of people uh, got new engines <laughs> out of the bargain because um, the oil was too good at its detergent prop with its detergent properties. And what it did was loosen up uh, and dissolve a lot of sludge that had built up in some of these engines that they were just happy with. You know, running on on conventional uh, um, um, semi synthetic or or mineral uh, based oils. Um, 
dislodged all this all this sediment and clogged up some oil passages and uh, got some of the the dirt and grit circulating around the engine where it didn't really do the engine a whole lot of good uh, and the oil wasn't and there was some other property about the oil I forget what it was that that just compounded the problem but mobile a ended up buying uh, a bunch of people some engines and b got got out of the aviation piston engine oil business rather quickly yeah. after that yeah. Uh, now let's talk about this a little bit. Other than these special cases, these experimental cases, if you will, or these you know failed innovations, um, are there choices to be made in selecting oil for your airplane? Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the issues? Yep. What are the, and we, we, we're, we need to start moving, thinking about moving on here. But let's yeah. let's talk about this. What are the choices? Are there different features of different oils? Obviously, there's aviation oil. We know that from you know there's right. a particular kind of well, oil. You, well, you, you're, you're, let's let's you're, stop. You're kind let's, of let's stop to use and draw. Improve. Hang on, one at a time here. Let's uh, Jeb. Why don't you go first? Let's, let's stop and draw a line. Let's talk about conventional uh, piston engines uh, versus uh, Rotax and, and uh, similar uh, engines, yeah. which are kind of unconventional when it comes to an apples and oranges uh, comparison. Let's talk about conventional aviation piston engines first. Um, as a rule, unless you're flying uh, a specific Lycoming like the H2AD uh, 0320, um, pretty much in any uh, aviation uh, piston engine oil will be allowed in your airplane. Um, Lycoming... Um, I don't. I don't recall the exact status of the uh, H2AD engine, but uh, some of the Lycoming's other four bangers require either a specific oil or um, an additive uh, added into other oil. Uh, Aeroshell, um, and I'm sure Exxon and, and um, uh, Philips and, and the other companies manufacture an oil with that additive in it, um, just to you know stay in the market. Uh, but you have basically you have three, you have three kinds of choices. You have um, um, straight mineral oil, or, or should I say, you know, there's 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 straight weight mineral oil. There's multi weight mineral oil. But the punchline with mineral oil is it is natural. It's not synthetic. Of course, the synthetic oil is all devised from uh, uh, petrochemicals anyway. So you you have the organ the mineral oils. You have um, uh, semi synthetic, which is a mixture of synthetic and, and mineral oil. Uh, and then you have the pure synthetics. Now, there's not that many pure synthetics out there right now. Um, personally, I use a straight mineral oil. I use a, the Philips XC uh, 20W50. Um, it's good for. Um, it's a good. It's a great break in oil. All the engine manufacturers say to use a, a mineral oil to to break in the engine, uh, as opposed to a synthetic, because you want to get a little bit of wear going on uh, when you're breaking in. Um, secondly, um, working through Aviation Consumer over the last couple of years, we've done some tests on um, uh, corrosion protection uh, with various oils, and they're you know kind of backyard kinds of tests. They're not scientific, uh, but they are you know controlled and they are consistent. And um, we uh, took some samples, some just some metal, uh, steel, and and uh, 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 consistent samples, coated them in various oils and hung them outside in South Florida for a period of time. And we wanted to see what would happen. Um, Phillips XC by itself wasn't all that good when it came to corrosion proofing or corrosion protection. But there's a product out there called CamGuard, 
which is designed to uh, enhance the corrosion protection. And the two of them together got really good results in, in the testing that we did. Aeroshell did well. Some other oils did well also. And I'm not, I'm not pimping consumer or anything like that. But um, that's, I, I've always used uh, that particular oil in my airplane. And um, for one thing, it's pretty cheap. And uh, the, t- the combination of the two is just jam up for my purposes. Uh-huh. David, what's your take on the differences, the different well, different choices to make? Jeb covered most of the bases, but did, uh, among the choices is straight-weight oil, 30-weight, 40-weight, whatever, and multi-viscosity. Uh, multi-viscosity has been a dominant feature in automotive and truck engines for the surface for a long time, and I found it made sense and worked well in aircraft applications. Uh, unlike some of my friends who are a little more traditional, think that you change the oil according to the season. Uh, <laughs> I always looked at this as, you know, the engine's going to go through these big temperature excursions from surface to cruise altitude anyway. Right. That's what I would think, too. I don't too. be using multi-vis to begin with. Yeah. But right. Right. Part of it depends on how you were brought up. Uh, I personally have leaned toward some of the semi-synthetics based on uh, chest, theirs, and others that showed the anti-corrosion properties better than some of the others. And based on experience, it showed that the semi-synthetics struck a nice balance between cost and consumption. Uh, when we were aircraft owners flying into the 120, 140-hour-a-year range, it wasn't unusual for me to not have to put any oil in between oil changes. Yeah. After I'd gone to these semi-synthetics that we were, were were real happy with, the cost for a case of oil went up about thirty percent. Mm-hmm. But I could but get three four oil changes out of two cases. Right. And what I'd been using before, what I got was an oil change per case, with what I had to add in between. So, uh. You know, your mileage will vary. Uh, I'll confess right up front. I think the above 120-hour-a-year average that we were flying the airplane really contributed to our low oil consumption. Thank thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I really think it was a major factor, the fact that we used the airplane so much, so frequently, and so many long trips. My average long distance, my average out of the local area trip exceeded 600 miles. Uh, one, one of the one of the things that I hear here too, though, is is talking about the frequency of changes and why we change oil and and things like that. Um, we don't change the oil because it loses its lubricity. It doesn't lose its ability to lubricate um, no, in most it applications. It doesn't get overly any, hot. It doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. What we're doing is getting the dirt out. Um, <clears throat> Again, we're talking about the conventional uh, aviation piston engine. This is a design that basically dates from you know the 20s, 30s. Um, it's designed to be loose because it's air-cooled, and um, it has to operate in various environments, uh, hot to cold, yada, yada, yada. Um, so you don't want something that's, that's as, as the different metals expand and contract as, as, the, heat in, in, as the heat changes, uh, they have to be rather loose. Um, 
that means that combustion byproducts get in the oil. And um, those combustion byproducts are corrosive. They have a lot, there's a lot of nasty chemicals floating around in there. Corrosive and abrasive. Corrosive and abrasive. Uh, mainly they're corrosive, however. And um, we change the oil. You know, if the airplane flies a lot, um, those uh, contaminants um, don't have a chance to get somewhere and start corroding uh, the internals of the engine. Um, so we can extend our oil changes, let's say, uh, and just a rule of thumb here, okay? If you fly 100 hours a year in your own airplane, which, which is, you know, considered a, a, an average or a, a threshold, um, you probably want to change your oil between 25 and 50 hours. Um, if you're flying more than that, you can take it out to 50. If you're flying less than that, you probably should take it down to 25, and, and, and that, that presumes you get your oil. oil. Is it, how that presumes you get the engine's equipped with a filter. It's a factor, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, if, if you drag the airplane out to just do some bumps and circuits on a Saturday or Sunday, don't, don't put it away until you know the engine has exceeded 180 degrees. You want to see the oil temperature at 180 degrees or higher while you've got it out that day. Why? It drives moisture out of the oil. Okay. And yeah. the moisture and the combined. The more you drive the- moisture out of the oil, the less potential for internal corrosive corrosion to occur. What do you get when you combine corrosive chemicals and water? Uh, I give up what? More rust. Bad, a bad day. A bad day. Okay. Hey, to listeners, um, if you have any other questions about uh, oil changes or, or, or that sort of thing, uh, why don't you send them into either put them in the forums or send, send them to send them a click and a clack. Send them to podcast uh, at uncontrolled airspace. Um, uh, and because although we've probably reached the edge of the envelope in pretending that we know what we're talking about, here, <laughs> yeah, we've pretty much exhausted uh, <laughs> yeah. our repertoire well, here. And, yeah. and, Feel know, free to ask; we may not have an answer for you. Yeah, uh, Aeroshell and Exxon, all these outfits have really good websites. Uh, that answer a lot of questions uh, about the oil that you're using and and best practices for protecting your engine. So if you're already a devotee, if you will, of one brand or another, that would be where I would start is a website for one of these companies. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. At the risk of at the risk of turning this into a three hour episode, um, there are three federal <laughs> stories on the list today that I wanted to kind of touch on while they're still a little bit timely. Federal um, stories. Yeah, the first one is that uh, the FAA has released what is, I believe, called the final rule or a final rule regarding sport pilot regulations. Um, and uh, I don't know, is this anything? Is this just a just no a? No one's jumping the, up and down about it. Uh, these were changes that they proposed back. Uh, about a year ago. Are these just uh, tweaks? Is this just technicality, or is there something real Well, they're in here? mostly tweaks. They're mostly tweaks, and the good news is that the uh, FAA followed the, the the doctor's creed. They don't seem to have done any harm. Uh, there were some proposals that they had made early on, and there'll be links where you folks can look this up, but they made some proposals early on that they withdrew or rejected. Because they got information that let cooler heads prevail. So the sport pilot final rule is just kind of a technicality, no big deal, probably a good thing. There's some fine-tuning there. There's some good stuff to like. There's some stuff we'd like to have seen come out better. All right, good. Then let's let's leave it at that. And, And there's some stuff we're happy that didn't come out. Okay. That's right. 
All right, uh, number two, uh, and you know what? This is maybe why I felt the earth move a little bit, why, why I felt things shake a little bit this morning, because Dave has said here the TSA is sounding smart on the revised LASP. Um, LASP, of course, being the, uh-oh, Large Aircraft Security Program. Very That's good. Somewhat. Yeah, and uh, which we haven't heard an awful lot about in a while, um, and uh, we were all justifiably up in arms about it when it was first proposed. Um, and what's the latest, David? Well, you <laughs> regular listeners of the podcast will have heard first heard me in particular melt down about this proposal back in October or so of uh, of two thousand. It was it was embarrassing. Yeah. This was the this was the proposal that was going to apply some of the airport style or airliner style uh, uh, security measures to. Not necessarily our size airplanes just yet, but to larger general aviation well, airplanes. To right? GA airplanes starting at twelve thousand five hundred and one right. pounds. And then it got quiet for. Then we all we all jumped up and down, yelled for a while, and then now it's been quiet for a while. What's happened just recently? Well, we heard from the uh, uh, general aviation manager of the Transportation Security Administration, uh, a guy by the name of Brian DeLauder, who is one of us. Uh, on national public radio uh, this morning, a podcaster. And, uh, no, what is he? He's a he's a pilot. A pilot. Yeah, he's a pilot. That's he's what, a pilot. Yeah. And he was on NPR this morning to talk about how they're abandoning certain aspects of the proposal. Uh, Twelve thousand five hundred pounds. It's not going to be the cutoff any longer. Uh, checking to make sure your grandmother, your mother-in-law, or your wife was on the not on the terrorist watch list is no longer going to be a part of this. Uh, the possibility of if you were weight qualified, you might have to throw out a passenger to make room for a federal air marshal is off the list. Uh, the weight limit is going up. Uh, and the banned items list is going away. So no longer will, say, a doctor flying himself to a remote clinic where he does surgeries once a week or once a month will no longer face the dilemma or will not face the dilemma of his surgical tools being on the banned items list and him not being able to take them because his aircraft doesn't have a separate cargo compartment right. that's able to secure this uh, completely physically outside his own reach. Yeah. Well, good. Lest so, he hijack himself. Yeah, that's right. So this is all right. So this is a good thing. Now, where are we with this whole thing? Is it still a proposal? And what's the next? What's the next step? What's going to happen? The next to it step all? is a new net notice of proposed rulemaking that modifies what we so universally rejected in the October two thousand eight proposal. Now, uh, and at the risk of putting you on the spot here, but I don't know how much you've really looked into this. Are we now comfortable with this, or, or we still think this is a bad idea, even though they've improved it? There's certain the, the parts latter. of this that will not stop feeling are a bad idea about this, but acknowledging that they're going to draw a line somewhere, and beyond that line, they're going to be a lot tougher. This is way, way better than what we were looking at. Yeah. This means that there won't be any effect on ninety percent of us. Okay, Jeb, what do you think? Um, I, I I I don't know about the percentages. I, I think um, I, I come back to two things. One, years ago in, in an earlier life, um, I had a multi-day argument with some Senate staff 
uh, who staffer a, a specific senator I will not name, who wanted to um, basically require airline style security for everything that flew. And what I tried to impress upon them is, you know, you can't put a metal detector by the fourth oak tree from the lake at some place in Alaska. It doesn't work. And what you're contemplating is ludicrous um, unless you're trying to kill kill off the industry. Now, if that's your choice, you know, that's fine, but let's be upfront about it. And that's kind of the way I left it with them. And and eventually wiser heads prevailed. Um, Secondly, um, until and unless, let me put it another way, Um, I'll acquiesce to some of this nonsense from the TSA relative to private aviation the day after I have to have a background check right. and rent a rider truck. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, uh, the, uh, the federal budget proposal came out recently, and uh, there was at least one thing in there to, uh, to cheer about, David. One word. Yay! Yay. Um, be more specific, please. <laughs> well... The more specifically, See, is, David screamed at his microphone, and now the voice, now the game that, control that, now is dropped now down. Now it's shock; it, it, <laughs> won't, it won't pick up anything. All right, David, speak the, up, the, please. The, the Obama administration's 2011 federal budget proposal not only includes about three and a half billion for airport improvement programs, about a third of which go to GA, but it, it also is totally absent the phrase user fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. or user payment or user assessment or anything that, that they're sticking with. And this, folks, is you guys, all of us listeners and the folks that wrote our congressman and the folks on the uh, General Aviation Caucuses that have formed the House and Senate, we all get to pat our heads for this one because apparently the – Noise and the logic. Who'd have thunk it? Logic of the argument against the user fees as promoted, promoted, pushed, and perpetrated by other parties for the last several years, like 30, uh, have failed to sell. They have seen the wisdom of a system based on the kind of assessments that we do now. Uh, the good news for the airline industry is that it means to continue, they get to continue paying next to nothing. Uh, the bad news is that passengers and airline pilots and owners get to continue to pay the full freight, but at least we do it in an equitable, proportional, sustainable, and logical way. Yeah. And that's all I got us. Jeb, you want to add anything to that? Uh, I can't add anything to that. <laughs> okay. Shout outs. So, uh, Oh man, I keep forgetting the shout outs. We gotta we gotta do the the quote of the week thing too. You got a quote of the week? No. Oh, let's see that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying we I gotta know. do it. <laughs> All right. Well we'll have to think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to plan ahead. Well, here. I, I got the quote of the week. All right, what's that? From the from the New Jersey Turnpike thing. Okay. Which we'll probably go into more depth later on, but what but everybody knows about the Jer- New Jersey Turnpike landing. This recently. was a traffic plane that landed on the New Jersey Turnpike in the last week or so. Yeah. Uh, Quote from uh, uh, MSNBC, according to uh, New Jersey, well, I'll just read the whole thing. This was pretty much a non-incident in terms of what the outcome was like. New Jersey Turnpike Authority spokesman Joseph Orlando told MSNBC.com. 
The plane landed. He taxed it over and onto the shoulder. We can't even get motorists to do that when they break. Float <laughs> of the week. That's great. I've okay. forgotten about that one. Yeah. All right. Shout outs. Shout outs. One I've got here is uh, we talked, I don't know if it was last week or a week before, recently we talked about Loran going away and, uh, and all of the different uh, pros and cons of that. Um, and we were talking about how Loran boxes were basically going to come boat anchors and uh, be useless. And we heard from our friends at the uh, 1940 uh, Air Terminal Museum down in Texas. And uh, he, he wrote, uh, he actually Twittered this to me. He said, uh, we'll take donated uh, Loran boxes at the 1940 Air Terminal Museum. Uh, we'd prefer ones with a demo mode so we can light it up for display. So if you have an old Loran that you, uh, that you aren't going to use anymore and you'd rather not uh, trash it or leave it on nope. your hanger shelf... You can get in touch with the folks at the uh, uh, 1940 Air Terminal Museum down in, uh, in I think it's Houston. I'm sorry, I don't have this right in front I, I will, of me here. I will get in touch with them. I don't have the box. Yeah. But I have a very, well, fairly pristine operator's manual sitting oh. in my hands as I speak cool. for a North Star M1. Hey. Woo. That was and an I, IFR box, wasn't it? It was an IFR box. It was, it was yeah. approved for IFR and, and terminal. Um, I had this. I had one of these in a Skyhawk I used to fly, and I had the manual for it. The manual's in pretty good shape, but I found it in some papers the other day and put it on my desk. To, I'll go to eBay it, but I'll just send it down to these guys. Yeah, and it does also uh, sort of uh, uh, bring to light the idea that if you've got old gear like this that's in decent condition, um, you don't necessarily need to trash it or leave it on a shelf. Find a local museum. There are aviation museums mm -hmm. stashed in corners of airports all over America um, that uh, would uh, probably wouldn't mind having these little pieces of history that. Yeah. Yeah, I might you. I might take it out to make room for something more utilitarian. But I sure wouldn't throw it in the. I sure wouldn't throw it in the scrap heap just yet. No, yeah. it, we'll, we'll we'll take it out and make room for an eight track tape player. Yeah, there you go. A useful piece of. Whoa, tape. what no, a great no, no, idea! No. <laughs> I know where you can get tapes. Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm not going there. Yeah, really, David. Tell us about uh, Howard Levy. Howard Levy. Howard Levy was one of the coolest old farts that I've ever known. Uh, Howard passed on uh, just a few days ago, and uh, what are we? February second was when Howard passed on. He was eighty-eight, and Howard had been an aviation photographer. Now do the math on your own. Don't make me plug this in for you. Howard died at eighty-eight. He'd been an aviation photographer making money this way for 72 years. Yikes. That's great. Uh, taught me more about air-to-air -air photography work than a lot of guys will get to forget in their lifetime. Uh, and uh, when Howard was supposedly retiring or at a milestone a few years ago, Kit Plains Magazine ran a photograph that I shot of Howard in the back seat of a T6 shooting pictures of me. And the uh, T6 belonged to this outfit called the North American T6 Aero Squadron, or T6 Squadron, which is now the Aeroshell Aerobatic Team. Same guys, same airplanes. Uh, shot down at Sun and Fun many, many years ago, and it was so much fun to look at Howard taking pictures of me. He taught me voluminous amounts that I'm not sure half of which I would have ever discovered on my own in a lifetime of shooting airplanes. 
wonderful guy, still working when he died, still being published. The Smithsonian, uh, Air and Space Magazine, was uh, working on a retrospective of Howard's work, dating back to when he was 15. And uh, it is a dark spot in my mind, the thought of going to uh, Sun and Fun in Oshkosh this year, knowing that for the first time in my career, Howard won't be one of the people that I enjoy bumping into and having a beer with. Uh, yeah. So Very sad. Uh, one last shout-out here. Um, we got a, a word from a group that's putting together a light sport aviation expo in Illinois later in the year, and I uh, just want to invite people to uh, in that part of the country to save the date. This is in uh, southern Illinois Mount Vernon Outland Airport, uh, uh, Mike Victor November. Uh, are planning to do a the Midwest LSA Expo on September 23 through 25, 2010. And uh, you can learn more about what they're up to at uh, MidwestLSAShow.com. That's all one word. And it's, it's nice country that time of year, too. It yeah. can be very picturesque. MidwestLSAShow.com. So uh, at the very least, think about saving the date, and I'm sure we'll all hear more about this uh, as, as time goes on. So uh, anyways... Uh, I think it's time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, Ow. Dave Higdon, uh, is, uh, it's always fun to have you around here. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, if uh, DaveHigdon.biz bores you to tears, avbuyer.com will let you extend that into the verbose. Uh, let's see, aviationsafety.com. Um, uh, AEA.net. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. Google okay. the name. And Do we'll away see. with the uh, theoretical physicist and the golf writer. There we go. I only played golf once. I shot 121. I figured that was as good as it was going to get, so I quit. <laughs> and Jeb Burnside. Jeb is an aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the net? Well, my day job is uh, where it's always been, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, personal website's jeburnside.com. And uh, I pop up occasionally on AvWeb and uh, Aviation Consumer. Cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about my, learn more, it's easy for me to say. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips that we play at the beginning of every episode. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki. Wiki. The Aviation Movies List, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you really going to say? Oh, live longer by flying because time spent flying is not subtracted for your lifespan. Actually, I'm 137. <laughs> no, no, there's a joke there. I'm not going. Anyways, that's enough talking. we got to go. Let's go flying. TTFM. <laughs>